1: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysun, the unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter Handgun. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Double Nickel Taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wysu. Before joining Larry with today's episode, let's get a few words from Hayden Outdoors, the brand that sells land through our conservation today.
3: When it comes to minerals, it's important that you understand how they work. The goal with minerals is to bridge a gap where Mother Nature lacks. Utilizing a properly formulated, high-quality mineral can result in increased muscle growth, immune response, reproductive success. Forage intake, milk production for fawns, and a reduction in skeletal abnormalities. In this series, I will go over each mineral and the roles they play, starting with calcium and phosphorus. Calcium and phosphorus are both macro minerals. While calcium is Earth's fifth most abundant element, phosphorus is typically deficient in most soils, especially those in the eastern and southern United States used in the largest amounts for blood clotting, muscle contraction, antler development, milk production, fertility success, improved digestion, general metabolism, and skeletal development. Calcium and phosphorus can be robbed from the skeletal system to meet the requirements needed if not provided in adequate amounts. The effects of these elements being deficient can lead to weaker bones, poor milk production, reduced conception rates, decreased body weight, and reduced antler development. This is why it's important to provide abundant access to quality minerals for your deer. I'm Brandon Houston with H3 Whitetail Solutions. Now on with today's episode.
0: Welcome to the DSC Campfire. And I am so honored this morning to have Mr. Shane Mahoney sitting across the Maybe the virtual campfire. We're coming off of an absolutely fantastic DSC Foundation fundraiser, our second annual gala. And and thankfully Shane was down for this to speak to a bunch of the chapters. But his presence is always so appreciated, not only by the DSC members, but by anybody that he comes in contact with anywhere he goes. Shane, welcome. And your background, you started out as a wildlife biologist,
4: right? I did. Uh, Most of my career was... um focused for the first, you know, 25 or 30 years on the kind of standard thing that uh, people are used to thinking about when they think about a wildlife biologist, you know. I worked in a system that had mostly, you know, woodland caribou, moose, wolves, coyotes, bears, you know, that kind of assemblage of wildlife. And a lot of seabird work I did very early in my career. But I went on to become the head of wildlife research for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador and then the executive director for science for the for the province. And so I did the standard things, Larry, the you know, the setting of the quotas, the, the kind of population counts, the you know, the predator prey studies with radio colored animals, all that kind of stuff. And actually had a glorious um, a glorious career because I spent almost all of my field research was in wilderness area, which we have a lot of there. Yes. All roadless, so you know, only aircraft access and then a lot of a great deal of walking and observing of animals. And I have um, always loved animals and I've always been fascinated by them. So I I sort of felt that my career just allowed me to stay a boy, really, to to do the kinds of things (laughs) I did. And um, so most people uh, who I interact with today, let's say, like at the gala last evening or with the chapters here... They don't really uh, know that you know. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of work in those spaces, and that I've published a lot of peer-reviewed papers on caribou population dynamics or predator-prey systems. A great deal of work on the American black bear. I worked on bears for 23 years. Published a lot of work with uh, on them. So, but that's kind of a, a world that a lot of people I interact with here, let's say at DSC or DSCF, um, they're really not familiar with. But then I have a whole bunch of colleagues from that time period, of course, who you know, don't really know what I do now <laughs> in this in this space, and uh, and it's kind of curious sometimes because uh, uh, you know you know I could be sitting in a big auditorium, maybe just like you often do, maybe waiting to speak or maybe waiting to listen for someone to speak, uh, and meeting these swarms of people, you know, um, and it's such a contrast from a lot of what I did in my career when yeah, I was very much alone and very much in very quiet places and you know, walking with animals every day. And so I've had, I can safely say, really more intense field experience than even most biologists that I know in the world because I, I truly lived at it. And I, my favorite part of being in that work was actually being with the animals. I mean, actually walking with them the darting and the tracking by aircraft and all those kinds of things, I did it all, but it was not really the thing that interested me most. I was in charge, so I
1: could kind of steal the stuff right. I wanted.
4: <laughs> and uh, I did, and uh, and uh, so sometimes when I sit in these other worlds, I reflect back on that. But you know, it's uh, it's all important. On the one hand, you're gathering knowledge that's used to manage wildlife. You're meeting with hunters and anglers and other users of the wildlife resource, which is really important. You get to understand politics, you know, because all, eventually all the decisions are made at the political level. That's important, whether we like it or not, it's important. And, uh, and then, in this new world, it's very much about influencing policy and the way the world views hunting and the way the world views sustainable use. And that world is very different from the world I grew up in in Newfoundland where hunting is just, you know, broadly accepted and, you know, very little criticism occurs there uh, in that sense. But of course, um, you know, you bring things from one part of your life to the next part of your life. So the things that I learned in that part are highly valuable in this one because I'm often dealing with policy people at the global stage level who don't have that practical background. And you can easily see sometimes how they make, you know, just different decisions because they didn't have that kind of on-the-ground experience. How do animal populations perform? What does death look like in nature? Um, And the patterns of the rise and fall of populations are not always the cause of humanity. There are natural things that influence the rise and fall of, of, you know, animal populations. So I think I was very fortunate to have, to grow up as a boy in an extraordinarily rural setting in a very beautiful, physically beautiful place, to go on to have a career of 33 years working in the wildlife space as a government biologist and official and then eventually you know, higher levels. Um, and then of course I founded a, an institute which was a marriage between the government and the university in Newfoundland, the Institute for Biodiversity, and that allowed me to help fund graduate students in many parts of the world. And, uh, you know, that led to, you know, my great deal of engagement with the academic community, cross-appointments at universities, you know, the normal kinds of things. But I was very much driven to to observe and to write and to research and to publish. I published a lot of peer-reviewed scientific work. Um, and um, And that has been really helpful to me. I would have to say that I think that that kind of work was more personally enjoyable, Larry, you know. Um, But the work I do today internationally with IUCN, with CPW, CIC, the many groups I work with, it's vitally important because um, we live in a global village and, you know, what happens in the United States affects what happens in the rest of the world. What happens in the rest of the world affects what happens in the United States. And even if we don't like these things, they are the hard realities. Our seal hunt in Newfoundland, which was followed for 350 years at an absolute minimum, the most dangerous hunt in the world, there's no question about that, um, it was eventually taken from us by decisions made in, a, in Europe. We had no control over it, we had no way of changing it, and and so you begin to realize that we may feel very secure in our hunting here in Texas, for example, or very secure in our hunting in Arkansas or Ontario or Newfoundland and Labrador. But it's, we felt very secure about our seal hunt in Newfoundland. And it was taken from us overnight by arms and instruments we didn't really understand very well. And uh, that's a big motivation for me to, uh, to work as I do now and work so closely with groups like Dallas and Wall Sheep Foundation and all, many of the other partners and entities I have, the state governments, and National Wildlife Federation, etc. I'm motivated by a direct experience where I saw something that was very traditional, very important to our culture, embedded in our language and our music and our you know, words and our forms of expression, Highly important to the economies of local communities, where people did not make a lot of money. Um, you know, talents that were developed that very, very few people ever managed to develop to be able to hunt these seals on the floating ice. Even the Inuit never hunted seals this way; only we did. Um, and you know, you, you you so it's it's a lot. It's 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 a big thing. It's not just about the hunting of the seals themselves. It's all that cultural. Economic and social uh, implications, and uh, you know, and the famous people who, you know, famous captains and famous sealers who became heroes in our in our culture, and then to see all that swept inside, inside, and that's why in many of my lectures over the years, both here in the United States and around the world, I tell people, you know, just because you love it, and just because it's important to your home state of Texas, let's say, and just because you may have politicians that will tell you that, you know, they'll defend it to the to the end um, and, and your own publics can be in support of it, unfortunately, not even all of that can protect you against losing it if some coalition of outside forces decides that it's going to take it away. And I know some of your listeners are going to say, you know, that would never happen to us in Texas, right? But Newfoundlanders are a very independent group of people, uh, lived a very isolated existence for a long time, very capable hunters and fishermen. That's what we did for five centuries. And uh, we said that too. But the truth of the matter is that we did lose that seal hunt because of what happened. And that always motivates me in these kinds of discussions.
1: I was
0: going to ask you what brought you from your field work to what you're doing now and you kind of answered that in a
4: way right yeah, there. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, um, uh, Larry, that, that life happens to us, yes, not the other way around. You know? Right, I agree. say I made this choice, I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. But I, Looking back on my life, I really feel that life just happens to us, and some of those things are really good, and some of those things are are not good, and every life has those good and bad things in them. And um, you know, what really started the process for me, I was uh, very well known in in Newfoundland circles because, you know, the media was very interested in the kind of work I was doing. I was very outspoken about my views, uh, even critical of government, and that you know, mm-hmm. gave me a lot of grief, but it also gave you a kind of hero status <laughs> yeah, in the sure. public mind. You know, exactly. And, you know. Yeah, sure. And uh, so uh, I was very really involved with talking about Newfoundland culture, which means a great deal to me, and preserving our way of life. So I was spending a lot of time speaking in schools and places like that. And um, but anyway, I. I spoke at a wildlife enforcement event quite a number of years ago now in a Canadian province next to ours, New Brunswick, where a lot of American enforcement officers were in attendance. And one of them came up after and said, You know, I said, we'd really like you to come and speak at what was known at the time as the Governor's Symposium on Hunting and Fishing in the United States. There used to be a Mm -hmm. whole series of those meetings, which I don't think we should have ever lost. No, sure, we shouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I went to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, I spoke there, and it was, um, you know, all of a sudden the doors just opened. I mean, people were were very receptive of the ideas that I had. had. Uh, I wasn't an American citizen yet you know, they could relate to many of the values and things I was talking about. And of course then I became very heavily involved as sort of the leading spokesman for the North American model. Dr. Geist was a mentor and a very close friend of mine, the man who came up with the term. But he wasn't the man to really bring it to the masses, he he was a different kind of person. And I took that on uh, partly out of you know absolute respect and adoration for this man who did so much for me and because I thought the idea was really important and that opened up gateways with the state agencies who were interested and you know the Wildlife Management Institute and other things that are well established here in the United States and then that brought other colleagues together James Earl Kenimer from the National Wild Turkey Federation was a major 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 he got it right away and saw the importance of this, helped me meet a lot of people I met people in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service like John Organ and eventually and this is one of the things you know, I've said many times about the United States you know the American people have been really really good to me they really have and, and I've been in it's not just some have been really good to me I mean I've been in I've spoken in every state in the United States of America and some places many times I've met many different groups some of them were big groups, well-organized and well-funded. Some were very small groups and did not have a lot of wherewithal. Some were just starting. Some were well-established, like Boney Crockett, for example, and the the elk foundations of the world and these kinds of things. But universally, I found that, um, you know, the people were really interested in what I had to say. And as you know, Larry, I have at times been quite critical of lots of things, you know, about the hunting world itself and how we portray ourselves and about you know, so I wasn't always coming down here with milk and and honey, Uh, you know, but uh, I I have to say the the country has just been really good to me and really supportive of me and there have been many organizations within the country that have supported me and of course some of them have been long, long long-standing, really important partners like Dallas who have supported me for years, you know, and... uh, um, and I remain incredibly grateful uh, for that. And, of course, that's the reason why I came from yes, sir. All, right. all the way from Newfoundland for the last few days to just be here and show support for the organization.
0: Well, I know it is deeply appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> well, a
4: lot of deeply people say so. I'm glad that people appreciate it, but I'm also glad to be able to do it because it's only fair that I do, you know, do that. You mentioned Dr.
0: Geist. I met him years ago when I was a student at A&M. And after when I was working with wildlife diseases and a lot of things as a wildlife biologist, he and I carried on a, a, I can't even remember what the topic was, but we were polar opposites on the, whatever the topic was. Yeah. And somewhere in my files, I've got long letters from Dr. Oh, yeah. Geist, and I would send him long letters. And He liked and, long letters. And so <laughs> it, was, it was, I really valued it. Sometimes I took the position knowing I felt exactly like he did <laughs> but I wanted to learn more and that gave me a way of learning more because of his approach his experiences and of course he was from a different part of the world as well too but those were great memories of him as well too I didn't
4: know you had that
0: connection that's really nice to yeah, know, sure. because, uh, it was, I've got to go through it, somewhere in my file like I said, oh gosh I, absolutely absolutely interestingly in whatever the topic was it was something having to do with uh, private lands at the time I, I think, sure, yeah. and, Interesting, over a period of time, uh, a few years ago, the last time I spoke to him, and he and I sat for about 15, 20 minutes at a meeting somewhere, and, and he had come around to my way of thinking. Yeah. But, and, it, and I wasn't trying to convince him of it. I just wanted to provide him with facts. You know? And yeah. he just said, yeah, you know, maybe you got something there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I so I, I always have been a huge admirer of him and, and very appreciative of the time that I got to spend with him
4: typing letters, (laughs) going back and forth with it. He was one of the, uh, he was an amazing man, of course, in so many ways. And uh, and he gave us this term, the North American model. Absolutely. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure.
0: Tell me what, I've read all your things, and I'm, right there with you on everything that you've ever said, but what really got you involved into that side of things Uh, to, was it the term? Was it the North American model? Was it your association with Dr. Geist or what really made you motivated to push that more than anything else?
4: Like, like a lot of things. I I, I think there were a lot of factors involved. Um, number one, I guess, um, You know, I grew up with animals, and I grew up in a very rural circumstance. You know, we didn't have any medical, we didn't have any hospitals, we didn't have any clinics, we didn't have any banks, we didn't have any, you know, it was an extremely rural uh, circumstance in which we grew up. And animals really were um, very early companions of mine. Some of them were domestic, like the few horses we would have, or sheep, or, or chickens and stuff. But we also, as children, you know, spent a, an enormous amount of time in circumstances that most people would probably be afraid to have their children do today, just because it's how we all grew up, right? And um, out of that came um, a very early realization in my life that um, I, I just didn't see any difference between us, between us humans and them. Um, I was raised in a very devout Catholic uh, household. Uh, my father was a devout Catholic and my mother was from Ireland, I'm an Irish citizen as well. Uh, she was from Dublin and, and she was a, you know, she had this wonderful mixture of of deep religiosity in the Catholic faith, but also incredibly superstitious, you know, believed in fairies and banshees and, and I mean, believed, didn't just tell you stuff. and and I believed for a very long time. As a matter of fact, when I had to abandon some of those beliefs, it was very sad for me to actually give them over. But um, that sort of led me into a a mental space where my religiosity essentially became uh, very Celtic. It became very, you know, all of my thoughts about bigger things than ourselves sort of centered around this kind of cosmos this kind of natural world and um, I began to be very concerned about um, how do we keep this reality with us and how do we keep wildlife and animals of all kinds with us not just animals we hunt but all kinds of animals with us you know I love moths and I love insects and I, I love a lot of strange things um, No, they're not strange as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) No, you know what I mean? I just find them really interesting. Absolutely, yes sir. And so, um, when Geist came up with this idea of a model uh, to explain what went on in North America, I was already practicing as a biologist, obviously, putting into, into force many of those principles. And like many people, I had not thought necessarily about them as I was doing them. So I was, you know, wildlife's an international resource, so we should use science, you know, and wildlife should only be harvested for legitimate reasons, and all these kinds of things. We were applying these things, as were all provincial agencies, state agencies. But we were doing all of that because we had these guiding principles of the model that emerged 100, 120 years ago. And that appealed to me greatly because it was a historical perspective that explained, first of all, why we did what we did today, And it's always helpful to know why you're doing things. And it also was an incredibly successful event that proved we could come from a period of wildlife devastation into a period of long-term recovery, monitoring, and utilization of wildlife with an enormous array of interested parties trying to do good things for them. All the NGOs and all the agencies, you know, various groups that are out there. I had by that time developed the idea of what I would eventually call conservation visions, which is the organization I lead now. Even though I was still in government, I was thinking about these things, and government can only give you so much latitude. And so Geist had come up with a vision, if you will, a model you know, of how things were approached. And I was very interested in the idea that there could be any number of models. That's why I called it conservation visions because I knew enough that um, in my travels up to that point that the cultures of the world were sufficiently different and the ecological circumstances were sufficiently different just as you've experienced in your travels Larry um, you know that one size was not going to fit all you know we could borrow some principles maybe and they could be applied but it was it couldn't be it couldn't possibly be the same kind of model everywhere. And so I wanted to study this idea of the North American model because it was where I was living, where I was from. I had a deep interest in the United States of America and American history. Um, But I also wanted to use that as a basis for refining my own thinking about these other models that might be out there. And then, you're quite right, another motivation for me of learning about it and sort of taking it on the road was I felt that Dr. Geist had contributed something that would have the power to unify us a great deal. And all of us have grown up in a world where we just seem to see forever escalating disharmony and conflict and tension and disagreement and you know partisanship and all of this. And yet here we had two massive countries with completely different histories with a small amount of antagonistic history between them, which is long, long past, but it was pretty minor, relatively speaking, um, and yet had managed over a hundred years ago to sort of come together and establish a, this, this incredibly powerful set of common principles and that somehow, you know, premiers from from Canadian provinces and Prime Ministers from Canada and Presidents from the United States and members of governors from all the different states and look at all the different cultures in the United States of America. And still, they could all come together and and eventually develop this kind of model. And I thought that was phenomenal. And I said, it cannot be left to be read in just, by 30 people reading an academic paper, which is, you know, what happens, Larry, right? You know, you might get 70 if you're lucky. That's a bonus day, right? (laughs) And so, uh, I really believe too in the power of the individual, and I believe that if enough people understood this, that we not only would get it into laws and other policy arenas, but that we would eventually um, form a citizen basis of support for those principles. And to an extent we have. And we had, I had no money, I had no machine, I had no anything at that time except word of mouth and getting a chance to meet good people and they helping me. Um, and I felt that eventually the threats that were coming against wildlife, which are always there, we would need to be able to combat them more than with just some specific thing on each individual basis. We needed to have this system we could defend, if you will, right? Like defending a nation, like defending a culture. And that really attracted me, and I gave a lot of my life to, to doing it, and fortunately, two years ago, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins University came and asked me if I would write a book on the North American model, there's never been a book. Mm-hmm. And I said I will under, but I said it uh, can only be under one condition, I said as Dr. Geist and I do it together. They of course agreed. And fortunately, we did that, and we now have this book. And of course, just last year he died. And of course, if we hadn't done it then; we could never have done it together. So I—it was a—it was a mixture of my past, growing up, my philosophical views. I'm a very inclusive person. You know, I talk to people in the anti-hunting movement. I talk to people in the hunting movement. Um, uh, you know, I love animals. I—I—I. I, 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 I want a world where people care about wildlife, and, and that ultimately is going to mean that there's going to be a diversity of opinion. But, you know, I, I have often asked many hunting organizations when, when they say to me, how, you know, they're critical of anti-hunting groups, and I say, well, really seriously think about it. Do you want a world where only hunters care about wildlife? Or do you want a world where other people also care about wildlife, but may hold a different view towards that than you. And for me, the answer, Larry, is very simple. I want that world where more people, as many people as possible, care about wildlife. And to get that, we just have to accept that we're not all going to see it the same way. And so all of that thrust me into it, and then life happens to you. It just, that river carried me on. To this day, to this to this interview or this this podcast we're sharing together here today. Meeting you, meeting all those people we didn't know one another twenty five years ago, for example. Right? So that's the that's the journey that I've been on, and now now I see this idea of of, of wild harvesting as a as a much bigger thing. Um, Shane,
0: let's I, I look, let's continue this in yeah. a second podcast if you don't yeah, mind. Absolutely, to me because there's, I, I'm so many things running through my mind that I want to ask you about yeah, that I can never cover with this. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't mind, we'll shut yeah. this down and, yeah. and invite everybody to come back here to the to this campfire if you will yep. which i am truly enjoying and i know everybody else out there is listening but we'll shut it down we'll come right back next week absolutely that's perfect thank you very much for having me larry thank it's you a pleasure. thanks for joining us around the campfire to leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode go to instagram at larry Wysoon outdoors please join me right here next week for another dsc's campfires
2: <laughs> DSC's Campfires with Larry Wisoon has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas H3 Whitetail Solutions Remington Texas Wildlife Association TRHP Outdoors